This program, On Wisdom and Being, features a discussion with NPR host Krista Tippett and author-innovator Andrew Zoli. It was recorded on September 27, 2016, before a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Hello, everyone. How are you all tonight? You doing well? Well, um, we're going to get into a conversation. We're going to talk together for about 40-ish minutes, uh, which means we'll probably cover three questions <laughs> in dialogue with each other, knowing Krista uh, uh, and I, the way that, that we, uh, at least the way we talk offstage. Um, and then we're going to have time for discussion. So please, um, as you have thoughts and reflections and questions on what you hear tonight, please hold them in your mind, because we'll, there will be a time for us to discuss. Um, I'm assuming everyone who's here knows about On Being and Krista's work. Uh, for those of you who don't, um, Krista uh, is the, the pioneering force behind On Being. And I, I can tell you, if you want a recipe for schizophrenia, watch the presidential debate <laughs> interwoven with Becoming Wise. I have to tell you, it is the, it's the, it's the definition of how you get to whiplash. And so one of the strangest and most out-of-body experiences is, is reading uh, the sort of internal um, and, and really deep journey that, that uh, Krista has been weaving with all of her discussants and, and all of her perspectives. We're going to come back to the debate uh, and, and back to this moment. And in fact, actually, if there's a theme on the discussion that uh, I'd like for us to have, it's about the various ways of understanding where we are. How do we root ourselves in place, which, uh, you know, an understanding of who we are and where we are seems to be the, a, a core part of the process of, of the beginning of the journey of wisdom. So I want to start with one line in your biography, um, which is that you spent time in Berlin. Mm -hmm. And in part of the time that I was preparing for our discussion, I was in East Berlin just a few days ago. Uh, you were in a very book. different East Berlin than I was the one in a I knew. Very, very different place. <laughs> yeah. And I think about the moment when you were there uh, in the Cold War, which was, what were the years you were there? Um, 84 to 88. 84 to 88. So just a few years before mm -hmm. the fall of the wall. Something was happening under that culture, mm -hmm. right? Something, something invisible was happening. Um, and I would like you to reflect on what was happening there. And, and something is happening in our culture mm -hmm. that also feels invisible. That something is shifting in our culture that's not quite clear. And I, I wonder if, as a journalist and as a thinker in that time and as a convener of discussions now, what, are you, what did you sense then? And are there any analogs to, to what's happening here? So I, th I think what you mean by invisible is that, I mean, there was a lot shifting culturally. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of things which had seemed to be the shape of forever, which were suddenly more fluid. But they weren't necessarily registering in terms of high policy mm -hmm. and politics. Is that what you mean yeah. by invisible? Yeah. Um, the, the hope that I take from, from that experience of living 
uh, in a country, well, literally in a country, the German Democratic Republic, as it was called, East Germany, which no longer exists. Um, and the wall in the, in the middle of that city, which no one, I mean, as much uh, as things did start to change and old assumptions were overturned, no one in that world believed that the wall would come down. You know, the chancellor was out of the country the day the wall came down. Right. Um, that is a very, that is something I hold, it's part of my imagination about change that at any given moment, there is more change possible than we can begin to imagine. And as I think you're pointing at, often the seeds of that, the groundswell of that is below the official radar. And so part of what I'm committed to is developing eyes to see and shining a light on what feels important but what is not making its way into the official narrative of our time. Hmm. I wonder, it's, it's interesting that, that uh, in the, if you'd asked the, the head of the British Admiralty in 1910, you know, how long the British Empire would last. They actually did ask the head of the British Admiralty in 1910 how long the British Empire would last. He predicted that it would take two centuries to dismantle the British Empire. It took less than a decade, right, to the end of the First World War and then the period right after. So yeah. I, I feel that sense that something very deep is changing and, and I, I um, it was interesting, this event sold out very quickly. Lots of people wanted to come tonight, the night after our first presidential debate. And a number of people who couldn't get in sent us emails, sent me emails, said, I really want to be there because I'm really worried yeah, right. about what's happening. And I, I can't quite sense what's going on in our own culture, mm -hmm. but I, I feel like something is shifting. And um, several people let me know that they had watched the debate last night with their, from under the covers, peeking out <laughs> through a little hole. Um, and so it, it's interesting to think about um, what motivates us, what brings us into this. Mm -hmm. in, in this wonderful book, which if any of you haven't read this wonderful book, I would, I would really uh, encourage you as a, as a salve and as a guide. Uh, on, on the times that we're living through. Um, you explore this world through five big ideas, through words and flesh, through love, faith, and ultimately hope. Mm -hmm. And what I'd like to ask you to do is just let's take them in order. Um, let's start with, um, with words. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's a, it's a beautiful book, and there's a lot of beautiful words in there. So just free associate for me, help us anchor in what that frame means for you mm -hmm. as you enter this discussion about wisdom. Well, so I want to say something just about the overall frame because this, this book took me quite a few years to write and mm -hmm. it was very hard to write and it was the classic case of writing it badly many times before right. it finally found its voice. And when I set out, I was, I was pursuing this question that's been asked of me across the years by many people. What are the recurring themes? What are the, what are the defining qualities of lives of wisdom and grace? 
And I was also captivated by this phrase of Einstein that there's such a thing as spiritual genius that, the, that is as necessary to the dignity, security, and joy of humanity as objective knowledge. But when I started out, I had this idea of about 12 chapters, and they had very poetic titles. And as I really did dig into this cumulative conversation of 13 years, and also what I had taken away from it, I realized that wisdom, that spiritual genius is too off-putting a phrase. It sounds like something elite. It sounds like, like sainthood. Mm-hmm. It sounds like something up on a pedestal that only the, the few can reach. And what, what, I, what I understood that I knew, and it felt so important to share, is that wisdom is possible at every age. You don't have to be old to be wise. Um, and that it, that it emerges through the raw materials of our lives, and that each of our lives holds these raw materials. So in the end, it was, it was these five chapters, and they were very close to the ground, close to life. And words, which is the, um, the first of those five raw materials, is, you know, we, we all deal in words all day long. I think mostly without stopping to consider the power that they have. Although, if I say to you, you know, that you know that in the course of any day, something that you say to someone else or something that someone says to you can make your day or break it. Mm-hmm. And then what does Annie Dillard say? How we spend our days is how we spend our lives. Um, and, you know, I, I, I speak with a lot of poets. I, I speak with people who love words. I also, I care very deeply about beautiful words. Um, and the fact that if we, you know, that, that it questions are a very powerful form of words mm-hmm. that I deal in, and that... Um, that answers uh, mirror the questions that are posed at them. So it's just thinking hard about the power that is in this, what seems like something very simple. I was struck in reading this book, the, the juxtaposition between, that, the, uh, between words and the body Mm. coming right after it. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I feel like a lot of the discussion about wisdom is a, I think you might have said this yourself, a kind of often understood to be a neck-up exercise. Yeah, very cerebral. Um, some of us are differently weighted in the world uh, and, and therefore differently anchored. Uh, and so much of our understanding of wisdom is embodied. And mm. I'd love for you to reflect on... on your understanding of that. I have a, a couple of thoughts as well. But. I, I think that, that um, a reverence for the body, for the physicality mm-hmm. of our lives and our presence in the world is one of the biggest things that I've, one of the biggest gifts I've taken from this life of conversation. Um, it's also been so interesting to, to be having that, making that observation in these years in which on so many of our scientific frontiers, we are, we are literally learning, literally seeing that these distinctions that we've made between mind, body, spirit, emotions, that they are, that they are illusory, that, they, that yeah. they grew of the limits of our understanding. I would say I'm no longer that interested in something that is merely spiritual. I don't really believe that. And I think that spirituality that is not embodied, 
um, is, is missing a lot of the depth that is possible. Even, I think, a sense of mystery uh, is something that we have to be planted in our bodies in all of their flaws and their grace to fully uh, experience. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. Uh, psychologists who, are, who study affect sort of often break emotion into a couple of different pieces. Uh, they sort of decompose emotion into the sort of rough quadrant. Is it about feeling joyful? Is it in the direction of joy? Is no. it in the direction of anger? Is it in the direction of fear or, or well-being? Then, then it's sort of valence, how severe it is, and then where in the body right. we experience it. Um, there's a designer named Orla O'Brien, this wonderful experiment which she took um, like 300 citizens of all different ages in Ireland, and she just gave them a stick figure and she asked them to draw where on the body they felt emotions, mm. and then she averaged them. And what emerged was the composite picture of the physicality of emotions. So when people drew love, they drew all over the stick figure. It just literally grew wings, mm. right? It sprouted, and anger was concentrated in the head, in the heart, and in the hands. Mm. And she said, anger is a force and love is a field. Mm. She understood mm. in this kind of physically embodied way. And one of the things that I uh, particularly resonated with in, in this discussion of the, the embodiment of our spirituality is, um, I went through something relatively recently in my life that was a very, very severe, required a very severe breaking of the body, some very serious surgery. And it broke something forth in me. Mm -hmm. And in the process, I had to join a community of people who'd gone through the same thing and who were going through the same process of being literally broken open, but being broken open spiritually as well as being right. broken open physically. And, because and, in fact, these things aren't separate. Yes, because they're they're in no way, right. they're in no way separate. So I I, f I found that um, very refreshing. This mm -hmm. sort of coming back to the body. Mm -hmm. um, so, the largest part of the f I think just page count wise is dedicated to the love, love chapter. Yeah, yeah. which mm -hmm. follows. Mm -hmm. So, talk to us a little bit about love and and the way you frame it here. Um, well, so um, I'm, I'm, I'm always concerned, I'm, I'm perpetually concerned with, um, as I say, that words are so powerful and how we, a lot of the words we, we need the most and that, that reflect the things that uh, we value the most actually get kind of ruined, mm. watered down through overuse or cliche. And I think love is the worst example of that. Um, on the one hand, I mean, it's, it's a magic word um, because it really is only one way to say, I love you. Right. On the other hand, we say we love everything. And I, I do it also, you know, I, I love your dress. Yes. Um, and also, um, we, have, we have this one word in English to carry what in other languages has, has more words. Mm -hmm. So really, what probably 95% of our, the way love comes up in popular culture is really what the Greeks would call eros, right? It's, it's that, it's the Romantic. falling in love. Right. Um, it's the love you can also fall out of. Um, there's also, 
and, and so part of my personal, uh, I don't like the word journey either, but my personal trajectory uh, path that has coincided with these conversations is about ever more appreciating the many forms of love in mm. my life and in all of our lives. And we so, we are so, um, in some ways, obsessed with you know this one kind of love and these messages that we are incomplete without that. Um, you know, there's the love of friendship, which becomes more and more important to me as I grow older. There's the fierce love that I have for my children. Um, there's a, the agape love of um, of the Greek, which is which is practical care that can be extended to neighbors or strangers. It has absolutely nothing to do with how you feel or whether you know them, or even, I would say, whether you like them. Um, there's metta, there's loving kindness, which, which places an emphasis, um, and that's from Pali, which places as much of an emphasis on, it understands, there's a psychological acuity in it that, um, that we, uh, we, can all, we have to feel compassion towards ourselves in order to feel compassion towards others. And, and that, the, that, you, that we should invest in both of those things. Um, a big concern I have um, that is also intensifying is that we need to revive the notion of love, the practice of love. We need to figure out what that could mean for our public life, for our common life. And although it's absolutely not what we saw in display in the debate last night, um, I, I, I hear this word love and an intention to make it something robust and muscular and practical really rising up everywhere. It's risen up in interesting ways, like after the Orlando shootings, yeah. um, after the Charleston shootings. Now we, we also, you know, what we, uh, what, we, what we want and need to do, I think, if we're gonna revive this language and this thing, is that it also gives us a way to talk about mm. why I can reel off so many shootings in recent memory. Our, you know, I, 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 I believe that this notion, uh, this, this, this animating question behind our great spiritual traditions, but, but, but essentially a universal human question, of what does it mean to be human? How do we want to live? In our time has become inextricable from the question of who we are to each other. And tolerance is the disposition, the virtue that we, the, the civic virtue that we cultivated as, as we became a pluralistic society, really for the first time in the late 20th century. Tolerance does not ask us to care for each other. It doesn't ask we're, we're us. We're New Yorkers, to, we understand that. <laughs> it doesn't ask us to be curious. It doesn't right. invite us to be curious right. about each other. It doesn't invite us just to be open to being surprised mm -hmm. by each other. And those are kind of these very, gentle, quiet building blocks. You know, it doesn't have to be that you have to suddenly be the most compassionate person in the world or be even profoundly curious about somebody who's very different from you. But just something like, I'm going to be willing, I'm going to be open to be surprised. I mean, that's how we start to, to change our presence and I think to change, to, to, to create something called common life for the 21st century, which we do have to create. It's not... It's not going to be what it was in 1950. It's not going to be what it was in the year 2000. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what's really challenging right now.
It's, it's interesting, two, two reactions to, to that. The first one is, that in our culture, one thing we see is a lot of great inflation in our language. <clears throat> Everything is awesome. And if yeah. it was literally awesome, like, it'd be awesome if you'd pass me the guacamole. If it was literally awesome that you'd pass me the guacamole, we, I'd be on the floor. If you passed me the guacamole, I'd be passed out. <clears throat> and I think in some ways we, we inflate our language precisely because we haven't lateralized and made nuanced distinctions across the, the continuum of love, for instance, mm -hmm. that you describe. Mm -hmm. We don't have, le so we fill one word with, we pack all that meaning on, then we inflate it because we have to cover all of these categories. So right. suddenly we love everything and everything is um, air kisses and Kardashian air kisses and the like. The other, the other, thing that I, I reflect upon is <clears throat> that in our history, like for instance, in, in the way we designed our common spaces, like the physical architecture right. of the way that we designed our communities. In the 1950s, we used to have a, a field called the civic arts. And we would, civic design called for that you would have, well, okay, we're going to have streets with boulevards and trees that separate the automobiles from the pedestrians so that there's kind of gracefulness just to movement. And I think about the, the situation we find ourselves in now where essentially everything that came after that in the kind of post-war period uh, was the development of communities that literally don't look like you should care about them at all. They look like Walmart parking lots because they by and large are Walmart parking lots. It's very hard to bond with them and they're not designed at human scale. And, and to kind of move from that metaphorically to, to the sort of contemporary condition in which we have vastly more fragmentation, uh, vastly more distraction, uh, in, and uh, many more time pressures. So we are, we are sort of continuously, our cognition is continuously invaded yeah. Now, that represents a tremendous opportunity and liberation, but also confusion and, and continuous distraction. Um, I, I read recently that it takes, according to the best um, scientific data we have on the subject, 63 seconds to respond, to fully cognitively recover from every email you receive, every email you receive. So some of us are living in persistent cognitive deficit. So that's why we feel traumatized. We a feel lot of the time. <laughs> right. Information overload, yeah. you know, overwhelms us. So I, I also I wonder about the, the the ability to achieve the design of those new common spaces, the the things that structurally enable us to return to the sort of core, these core principles mm -hmm. in an environment where we're living in a kind of, kind of constant electric light show. Yeah, I think it has to be happening at any given moment on all kinds of different levels. And there is the structural piece. And there's also the fact that we, we need to get to know each other again. Mm -hmm. Like Our neighbors are too often strangers. And uh, it, you know, when we, when we start to talk about social healing, we often leap to talking about structural change, which is absolutely essential, there's no question. But there's also this piece that's missing 
that we don't know each other, that we're not in relationship. And I, I think that a lot of our design cannot be as wise and effective as we want it to be without that base of relational information. In, there's a, an emergent understanding in, in the design of systems that the ones that succeed are designed with and not for. Mm-hmm. And just those right. three simple words, with, not for, as a kind of basic premise for the design of common mm-hmm. goods, right? Mm-hmm. That we don't, I don't make for you, I make with right. you, um, requires that kind of relational mm-hmm. uh, element. I want to. I want to make sure we finish our five-part list because we got to love. I want to ask you about faith mm-hmm. and talk a little bit about um, that part of of the. That's a, that's a, that's a big one too. Um, yeah. uh, well, tell me what. What do you think is? Was there anything in that chapter that surprised you? Because it was pretty complicated. Is there anything that you would want I, me to? You know, I to be honest with you, the, the challenge is that. Uh, we know each other pretty well, uh, and um, almost all of my reactions to that work, as 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 often as the case, is very internal. Right. So I'm not sure it, it might be parochial to me. Well, so I, I I think if I if I had to just describe a piece of that, it is my sense that um, faith is evolving in our time, and yeah. that we just the observation that we are among the first human beings in the history of our species who have not inherited religious identity like we inherit our ethnicity, our hometown, Um, until just a couple of generations ago, you didn't just, you know, inherit this affiliation. You probably went to the same church or synagogue that your parents and grandparents Mm -hmm. attended. And this, just in a very short period of time, has become incredibly fluid, <clears throat> at the same time that there is so much more religious and spiritual diversity. And, uh, and this is a new situation. And, and, so, and so what's, what's really remarkable about that, so, but what's, what's happening is not that this is going away, but, but we choose this. And even people who are in the, you know, who choose, <clears throat> who remain, deeply planted in a tradition. It's a choice right. in a way that it wasn't in previous generations. That's right. um, so that's astonishing. And then, you know, at the same time, there is this ever larger, and this is part of the phenomenon, is ever larger percentage of people, 30% of Americans under 30, who check the box that says none, none. N-O-N-E, when asked if they have a religious uh, identity. A lot of those people are in our media space, uh, listening right. to On Being, right. and I, you know, that is an opinion poll-generated uh, label, and it does not begin to describe what I experience in this growing s- section of our of our society, which which is allergic to vitriolic religion. Mm-hmm. Um, Lot, you know, people born and who grew up in the 1980s and 1990s um, saw something on display that they have rejected. Um, but I experience a, a tremendous a, a integrity of, of spiritual searching, of, of really theological mm. curiosity, and especially a passion to be of service. Mm. And I think, 
and I'll never know if I'm right about this, but I think if we could, if we could fast forward 100 years from now, I think I, I see this, this, um, this swath of our society as being in places akin to the kind of spiritual rebellion that was the, gave rise to our monastic traditions. And I think there's a lot of renewal. There's really wonderful questioning and refashioning um, of some of the deepest impulses behind our traditions in that sphere. And I think they, if, if, if our traditions survive this century in a way that we recognize, I think a lot of that energy will come from people we're now calling nuns. Mm. You know, I, it's, I couldn't agree with you more. We, we're in this sort of fascinating moment, I think, where, so over the course of my, I'm 45, so over the course of my lifetime, uh, I remember when, when as, in a, as a child, my mother got cancer. Mm. She had a radical religious conversion, and Pat Robertson moved into our life. Mm. And he just moved in, and I, it was a, he was our constant companion. And I, like a lot of people at my age, we, who grew up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, yeah. we, that was our trampoline exit. We just bounced right off that, right, into the unknown and said, Anything's better. And, and yeah, I want to say there was a collusion of, of, of a few people like Matt Robertson who were very happy to throw themselves in front of the microphones right. and speak not just for Christians but for God. Right. And the collusion with journalists who were very happy to have those people present themselves. But it, it, this, this message was transmitted that this is who religious people are. Yeah. This is what they sound like. This is what they advocate. Well, so what was interesting in that experience is I, 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 a couple other things happening in our society at the same time. One very important thing was the basic backdrop of, say, my life in being as old as I am, uh, which is the, the sort of central narrative of de, the dissolution of institutions, not just religious institutions, mm -hmm. family structures, the relationship between people who worked for companies, the employers and employees, right? all of the basic structures that sort of sent us similarly out into an environment where having unwound those structures, there was some freedom in that liberation, being uh, disconnected from the worst excesses of some of those traditions, but none of the security of those institutions. And so that, that has been, that's been happening. At the same time, I think about the work of a, the sociologist Eric Kleinenberg, who shows that the largest group of Americans now are people who are unmarried living alone, in, in a particular, it, it, the generations that follow ours. They're not actually all that unhappy. They go out, they're, you know, I was, I was at a dinner party with a woman who was in her 20s, and she got there late, and we were sitting at the end of the table, and there were a bunch of um, older folks having a conversation who was a little impenetrable. So while she was sitting there, she was just looking at her phone and doing this. And uh, was she on Tinder? She was on Tinder. She was making. <laughs> she was. She was. She was finding sex for the evening, and then hitting Uber for a car to come take her to the sex. And so then we talked, then I said, well, I want to see how that works. Like, how, explain that to me. I want to understand what your rationale is, what you like, what you don't like. She showed me the, she's very, very transparent about it. And I asked her, well, what does that do for your relationships? And she said, well, level one has gotten incredibly easy. Like physical intimacy, no problem. I'm two swipes away at any moment. 
but all the levels above that seem to have gotten impossible. There's no path from there to some kind of deeper intimacy. And she admitted that the last time that she'd done this, the gentleman that she'd connected with, after they'd finished being together, he was lying in bed looking for his next one while while he was lying next to her. And so in some ways, we, you know, I think about that as the backdrop through which people are also, the circumstances which they're entering the conversation about meaning, relationship, caring. There's a kind of, e- some parts have gotten radically easier. Some, pe- some parts seem, seem to have gotten much harder. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure what the terminus of that story is, but uh, it occurs to me that, that uh, somehow uh, we've got these incredible technologies of connectivity mm-hmm. and they're binding us together in new structures <laughs> in society. Right, in all right. kinds of ways. In all kinds of ways. Uh, and, I, and I wonder about what it means for our, our sort of path well, uh, to deeper meaning. Um, I've, had, I've, I've, I've found it important to talk, to speak with technologists these last years and for people to remind me that this that our technology is in its infancy. Yeah. I mean, it feels like this giant, fully developed thing which landed in the middle of our lives. Um, in fact, you know, I have, I have two children who are 18 and 22 now, and I, I look at them and I feel like they are this kind of the, this guinea pig generation. Mm-hmm. These immersive technologies that are involved in the minutia of your day. And it's also clear to me that 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 we, but especially these generations kind of on the front lines, that this will be their territory. You know, what we've called work-life balance. There's going to be this life technology balance that we have to figure out individually and collectively. Um, it, It is just another tool, right? There's nothing that happens online that doesn't have off, happen offline. Um, but it's a huge canvas that also amplifies. And then again, there's this immersive quality to it. Like our telephones. I feel like, I, I actually, I, I was on vacation and my, I dropped my phone in water. It was like an amputation, right? It was like, I realized that it, it, it had been like the phone was part of my hand. Right. And then it was so calming for it to be gone once I got used to it. But, but, and, but you know, here's, but so this story sounds so desperate to me. Um, and we do hear those stories. But I also know, even in my kids' lives, that people are fig- working with this, sure. right? Yeah. There are a lot of young people shutting down their Facebook pages or, you know, just deciding how much they can use the technologies. Um, my, so, so that's all happening. My concern is really how do we... How do we connect the dot? We're learning so much at the same time that we're making so many terrible mistakes. Mm-hmm. But we publicize the mistakes. So how can we, and this is really a question I'm just, I'm working with. How can we start to see the connective tissue between the learning, between the good evolution, between the creation of new realities, so that we start to factor it in mm-hmm. to, the, to our sense of the story of our time, mm-hmm. and that we see the breadth of it, and not just the terrible headlines, which is what we tend to think of if I ask you, what's the story of our time? 
we go there. You know, it's, it's interesting, part of, in, in another part of my professional life, uh, I've been working very closely with Facebook, which actually has an amazing You've team. You've been doing such interesting things with Facebook. Yeah, they have an amazing team of people. Who they call, they're called the Compassion Research Team. And their job is to determine the most effective mechanisms by which people resolve conflicts online. Every day there are tens of millions of things posted on, the, on their platform alone, millions and millions and millions of things, and some small fraction of them profoundly upset other people. And we, the interface has never given us a mechanism for addressing how we address each other, like the kind of basic civic language of, of empathy and etiquette and, and, uh, and so they're doing real work on redesigning the interface in a way that is, in effect, the largest peace-building activity. It's the largest reconciliation activity because they're the, Facebook is the second largest entity on Earth. Christians at 1.6, Facebook users at 1.5 billion people on Earth. Yeah. So if you can do things that, you know, the, the ability to encourage sociability I think is extraordinary. Although they do have a profit motive, as they do so. They also have a profit motive. People who don't like each other don't tend to come back, right. which is a big issue. I want to I come to two last questions, and then I would like us to all to have a chance to talk. So I'll just tell you in advance what they're about. One, one I'd like to talk about uh, this moment that we're in, this electoral season, uh, this discussion we're having, which is unparalleled in its rhetorical excess, <laughs> uh, right. if nothing else. Um, and, and, uh, and, you know, a big part of your work has been on how to think about having civil conversations. And never have we more desperately needed common spaces and to really see the other and to hear. And so I'm, I'm curious to know, so the first question I'm going to ask you is, I'd like to know what do you think we're mishearing across those boundaries right now. And which boundaries? Well, across, let's we say have across quite a the few of them. Yeah, <laughs> let's let, uh, pick pick let's pick some of the obvious ones, but let's mm -hmm. you know, what what are we hearing what are we hearing from uh, I'll just say from Trump supporters. Mm -hmm. Right? Trump Trump's been this really extraordinary phenomenon. Um, and I guess the question I would ask is so what, what's the message? Trump, mm -hmm. Trump is a mirror. Trump as a mm -hmm. Trump as a as a, uh, a represent, representation and as right. a leader. So on last Tuesday night, I was in Washington D.C. in a discussion um, with David Brooks about humility in politics, mm -hmm. which is almost kind of a nonsense phrase right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> But one of the most important points that it felt that I had to make is that uh, as much as we may feel we would like that, it is not rewarded. We don't mm -hmm. reward. No. We don't even reward people acting like grown-ups do when they say, you know, that thing I did 20 years ago or two years ago, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. They still get pilloried. So we won't have the political dialogue that we want until we find ways for that to be actually safe for people who want to keep their jobs or get the job they're running for. Um, 
I, you know, coming back to this notion of how we kind of walked into a pluralistic society with a very small toolkit. Um, tolerance can only take us so far. We actually, and this is related to what I just said, we actually only, uh, we only publicize outrage. Like we, we are, and we are trained, we are trained for, for good, you know, for many good reasons as well. You know, what, what are we skilled at doing? What are we trained? We are trained to represent ourselves. We are trained to advocate for our identities. We're trained to stand up for what we believe in. We need that training. But it's not enough. We also need to cultivate in ourselves and in our common life um, a space for just being curious. Um, for not just being quiet while the other person says what they have to say, which is how we do listening, um, but for, for being present and being willing to be surprised. Um, not, you know, again, we, we walk into most of our public spaces with a great armor on where mm -hmm. I know what I stand for and I know what you're about. So there are some things that have come to feel so intuitive. They are habit. They are, there's muscle memory around yeah. these things. But, I, but one, of the, one of the great discoveries of our time through neuroscience is that we can create new muscle memory. Right. So there are just, we just have to start practicing new things and it's not going to feel normal at first and it may not feel safe at first. And it's probably not safe in every situation. But my, what I'm, what is on my heart and my mind as I watch our political life right now is that there is a tremendous amount of raw human pain and despair out there. And right, and Donald Trump, whatever you think of him as a presidential candidate, has allowed that pain to be in the room. Mm -hmm. And again, because we only do outrage, we, we reward outrage. So I think it is in all of our interest to start practicing, creating spaces where there's, a, you know, where, where, where people can walk towards something else including just letting their pain be in the room and having us be present to it as pain. Um, the next, you know, it goes to anger. That's what anger looks like when it shows itself in public. That also means we have to create spaces where people feel safe enough just to be in pain. But we can do this. And, you know, I think something that is hopeful in a backhanded way is that we, we want our national political level to be the place where this kind of behavior is being modeled, where the way forward is being shown. Right now, it's the most dysfunctional space in our midst. It's not just in this country. So that's the bad news. The good news is it turns this work back to us. And it, start, it has to start very close to home. And in fact, that's, that's the way social change always happens. So let me ask you a question at the sort of the other end of the telescope. Change happens at all of these different scales and all of these different time signatures informed by all of these different ways of understanding ourselves and the world around us. We're living against a backdrop of all of this psychic and social tumult at the yeah. moment. Um, 
but at one very large scale, we're also living against the backdrop of transformational ecological change. Mm. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, our stratigraphers, the people who decide the terminology for the ages of the planet, pinned the beginning of the Anthropocene, the age of humans, at 1950, because that's when we began to leave a record with the first hydrogen bombs mm. in the rock that will last for billions of years after we're all gone. Um, and on the cab ride over here, uh, I was just reading the news that the first human being was just born, just, just today or yesterday, who has three parents. Uh, two mothers genetically combined their material mm. with a male, with a, with a man, uh, to overcome a particular genetic uh, uh, problem that one of the parents had. So this is the first child with three. So we're living in this moment of yeah. transformational human capacity and transformational ecological challenge and risk at a scale that's very hard to comprehend. It's hard to just, it's hard to see it. It's we, so, can't, you know, we can't comprehend it. Our right. brains can't take it in. And I, it strikes me that many of our wisdom, our deepest lessons the, in, the, in the record of the human story all happened against the backdrop of a certain, a certain amount of stability. And so as we think about, and this will be my last question, then we'll, we'll open it up. Um, how much do you think the story of wisdom in our moment is about discovering and remembering the deep lessons of the past. Mm -hmm. And how much of it is an act of moral discovery in the sense that we have to discover new principles for how we live now in a world that was not presaged you know, in quite the same way by those, by those stories? Yeah, well, I love it that it's both. It's always both, right. which is kind of a relief, right? That we don't actually have to make up new things to get ahead. Um, you know, I, 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 I write about um, this evolutionary biologist who I've interviewed, David Sloan Wilson, and um, I, I kind of asked him this question about, um, does it make sense, actually, that, that we do things that, that are bad, that lead to our decline, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in evolutionary terms? And he said, well, you know, a, a fish can take itself out of water, and, and if it does that, it won't be able to function. And that's such a good way, and then it needs to put itself back in water. It's such a good way for me to think about, I mean, like in the 50s and 60s, we, we, we made a lot, we did a lot in the name of progress. Like what we did with food, mm. putting it into boxes and cans, which then completely transformed our agricultural system. What we did with design, that we designed places where people are supposed to learn and be healed and die. Also boxes. As boxes, completely soulless. So, so we, t we, take it, we take ourselves out of water and we rediscover real food. We rediscover um, human, hum that the human touch mm -hmm. and that light is important. You know, these very, that we need green spaces in our midst. Um, so a lot of wisdom is actually remembering things that people have known forever and that we forgot. I think in that category also is this great new discovery we have. 
partly by way of science and by people like Brene Brown, that the human condition entails vulnerability. <laughs> and of course, we didn't forget that, but we pretended like it wasn't true. Right. Um, and up. remembering that and acknowledging that as part of the reality, you know, and, and understanding that that, in fact, that vulnerability is the ground is the source of courage, and um, and that it brings us into connection with other human beings, and it, it gen engenders compassion if we if we walk through it mindfully, if we, if we let it be an occasion for becoming more wise. Um, and then I feel that we are so supported and emboldened by science in terms of the things we're discovering. And just, just one example um, that feels really important to me. We're just gaining such a more expansive, useful understanding of the fullness of what it means to be human and to be a whole human being. Um, I think our, so, uh, you know, another phenomenon of our time, and I mean the last few decades, is this terrible phenomenon that religion doesn't live up to what it's supposed to stand for. I mean, it does in at times and in places, and then in a, at very highly publicized times and places it doesn't. I think that in order for the virtues and the teachings uh, and the practices in s deep inside our traditions, which are really a conversation across time and generations about these great animating questions of human life, um, I think it's not possible to fully appropriate all of that without a modicum of kind of sanity, without a modicum of spiritual health. I love this phrase in Buddhism. Um, Mental hygiene. Mm -hmm. You kind of need a basic level of mental hygiene to be, to, 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 to lead a worthy, wise life. And we are learning how to do that, you know? And it's all kinds of things from, from how we're understanding that trauma lodges in the body, that we work on our bodies, we're working on the rest of ourselves, from how we're learning about neuroplasticity and the fact that you may not feel that you were born to be the most compassionate person in the world, but you can actually practice this and you can actually change your brain and you can change your presence in the world. So, so I do think in a very real practical sense, um, wisdom is available to us in a way that it hasn't been to other generations for us to acquire it. You know, that's, that's, the, that's a wonderful place to, for us to, to pause and, and to welcome reflections. I will say, uh, at the Garrison Institute, there are these extraordinary programs, uh, one of which is specifically focused on how we address the primary and secondary trauma of very high-stress professions, like people working in humanitarian aid work, people working in, in uh, urgent settings where the potential for burnout is really intense. And the prescription is very basic. Addressing the psychosocial resilience, the embodied rele the release of embodied trauma involves moving the body. It involves addressing practices and habits of mind that encourage the kind of mental hygiene and emotional self-regulation that are 
the hallmarks of health. They create the kind of nascent green spaces from which larger health occurs. So, for instance, the, that program just by itself addresses mind and body and then the connectivity around us, the real kind of relational connectivity that extends past us. And both in that kind of work and the kinds of things you find at Garrison and in this wonderful book, um, what really leaves a lasting impression is how uh, simple and accessible mm -hmm. it really is at the mm -hmm. end of the day. This mm -hmm. is not, I mean, thank goodness we don't need PhDs. Right, to get wisdom. Mm -hmm. I've met a lot of very unwise PhDs, so this, <laughs> who could use it? But will you just take a moment and just, I'd like to just thank you again. Uh, and then um, I hope you had a few thoughts and reflections, things we may have talked about, things we may not have talked about. We have a few minutes. What I'd like to ask you is to ask a question and ask a generous question. Um, and do so in a way that does not require a long speech, say shorter than the one I'm giving you. How's that, okay? So why don't we take a few, a few reflections. Yes, Jeff, down here. Um, thank you very much. I, I wanna tease out a little bit more of this, this spirituality and religion, um, because spirituality often feels really wonderful but can become very self-involved in a lot of ways. And, and mm -hmm. wondering of the, all the people who say they're spiritual but not religious, is there value in being religious but not spiritual? Um, of being, you know, what you were saying earlier about yeah. just the, the kindness that needs to be treated to other people. So I just love to hear. That, that's the new frontier. I feel like when people talk about spiritual but not religious, I, I, I hear so many people now talking about being religious but not spiritual, mm -hmm. which can mean different things. I, I know scientists who speak that way, hmm. who say that they absolutely have a sense of awe and wonder, mm -hmm. um, and they, and they don't need to, they, they don't need to um, attach it necessarily to a mystical experience, mm -hmm. um, but that there is something transcendent about that. Or I think about um, Kate Braestrup, who's a, a Unitarian Universalist chaplain. I did an interview with her years ago. Some of you may have heard that. And she works um, in these, on these edges of life where people get lost in the woods or where, where crisis happens. But she said, you know, for her, God is in the way, the love of God is in the way people come together and love each other, and that's good enough. Um, I think that the, that the, you know, I think of spirituality and religion, if, if spirituality is the essence of the thing, um, religion creates a container. Uh, these containers um, were molded by human beings, and they can be dropped and broken by human beings. But these containers have carried um, spiritual insight across time and combined them with things like ritual and text and community. Mm. Um, and I think that these things are less separable than we think, and that when, this, when the journey goes deep on either end, people often start gravitating back towards the other thing and integrating that is what I think. You know, I add a tiny little scientific coda on, the, on this thought of religion without spirituality. Uh, at Berkeley, there's a center called the Greater Good Science Center run by a psychologist named Dacher Keltner. He's and doing all this science, of, the science of awe. The science of awe. So <laughs> yeah. what makes us genuinely think something is awesome? Mm -hmm. One of the most important ways in which you do that is you take people's perception. So if you're looking at it through a window like this, and then I radically change the scale of your perception. You go, oh, like 
as you pull in, you, you know that, that moment you look up with reverence at something very, very large. So uh, Keltner and his colleagues run this experiment where they take people out to two, look at two experiences, one of which is not terribly awesome and one which is genuinely awesome. They're looking at these giant mangroves of trees. And while the subjects are sitting there counting the leaves on the trees and doing this, a, another researcher comes up and apologizes for being late. Uh, but it's not a real researcher, it's a paid actor. And he's carrying a box of pens and a bunch of papers and he trips and he spills all the pens all over the floor while the person's having this reverential experience or while they're looking at something that's not that awesome. So the natural human reaction is to bend over and pick up the things that the person's just dropped at your feet, right? Because someone's just shown themselves to be vulnerable. The people who are having the awesome experience pick up more pens for the stranger, mm -hmm. always, because awe imbues us with generosity. Mm -hmm. So when you think about a cathedral, a cathedral is a machine for awe, mm -hmm. but it is also indirectly a machine for generosity mm -hmm. that requires no spiritual practice to, to have, right? It, it works on all of us because it's a perceptual engine for doing that. So I think there's actually, there's a lot of territory there. I wanna make sure we get a couple other questions. Well, maybe one in the back. I have a really embarrassingly paltry <laughs> meditation practice. Um, I, because I know it's good for me and it's real, um, I started doing yoga years ago and I, I, I do, you know, people talk about yoga as a moving meditation. And for me, actually, I, I do need to do that, stilling my mind. I, I also, I'll say recently I've started to pray again, which is, of course, my, that's my, the tradition of my homeland. And I, I had kind of come to think of prayer as something that's just woven and flows through all of life. But I've realized actually that having that contemplative practice, having that time in the morning, calling it that, is meaningful for me. So I've kind of woven that together with my, my really pathetic meditation practice. So... I'll just offer the converse, which is that when I practice yoga, I practice flat on my asanam, uh, <laughs> which I am not one of those people who can put my left toe into my right ear. Um, but I do have very active um, centering prayer practice mm. and, and very longstanding and um, deeply transformational and, and deep encounters uh, with, the, with Buddhist practice. And, and I am, I will just tell you, profoundly blessed by the access to the garrison ecosystem of teachers and people. I mean, I, I say this not this is not an advertisement, but we have some nice brochures over there. You should go check them out. <laughs> I think of meditation as, um, and prayer as spiritual technologies. Right? We're, we're like rediscovering. This is a good example. Something that's so ancient, contemplative practice. Um, it's in all of our traditions, but Buddhism actually really honored it and developed it and put it at the center and it's kind of brought this thing to 21st century people just when they need it. 
Um, but it's also helping other traditions recover that practice, which in many of them yeah. was kind of consigned for, for experts in monastics. Yeah. One other thing, just, just to pick up on that thread, you know, I, this is something I feel sort of slightly mixed about. We have, um, we sort of California-sized uh, spirituality, right? Um, I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, as you probably might have been able to tell just from the examples I was using. And we were just talking about this actually before our, our session. You know, now everyone's got a yoga room. Everyone's got a meditation hall where you can go for 15 minutes if you're feeling burned out before you do another 25 hours of coding in marathon <laughs> sessions to build the advertising engine that will drive the distraction machine that will cause thousands of people <laughs> to need meditation. Yeah. And so, like, what happens is that we've socialized, I think, actually something that is useful but kind of palliative, thin. The, the broth is thin, which is okay because not everybody encounters these practices, um, you know, my butt falls asleep. I have to, you know, like I understand there are like real reasons why some people have a hard time being still. Uh, but I think one of the things that's really important about these traditions, and especially there's like a practical aspect, and then there's something else. The practical aspect is that we live in a time of such exuberant overabundance that the practice of stillness is equivalent to the act of seeing and being present to the complexity. It actually changes you perceptually in some ways that are hard to articulate, but that allow you to be still kind of in the middle of all that. And there's another part of that, which is about the potential for radical transformation, which is what happens when you puncture that thin veil or that, that sort of lightweight broth, right? That if you take these things seriously, you start to think about how do we make a wise society? Well, if we're going to make a wise society, we're going to have to remake some of those structures. We, it, it has to start at the most intimate scale, which is kind of within us, and at the boundary of us and our most intimate relationships. But ultimately, can't stop there. It has. You, know, you, you have to start. You have to admit the possibility of more radical forms of transformation. So, I feel ambivalent in the sense that I think those practices are very important for helping us cope, but they are essential for enabling us to change and make deep, deep structural change, um, in confluence with all the other ideas and things we've been talking about. I think we have time for one more question, so why don't we come right over here. Um, I like to, we started with the story of your time in Berlin, and we talked a little bit about the present fear that perhaps exists amongst us, not knowing what's going to happen. And I, for me, the fear is that at this moment of change, I don't know if it's that we're about to build a wall or, or tear one down. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I wonder if you guys could connect the different spaces we've talked about, the online, the physical, and also the, the concept of conflict and our comfort perhaps dealing with difference and what we all need to do and in what spaces to try to steer towards the bringing the wall down scenario as opposed to the putting the wall up. <laughs> That's a really big question. <laughs> I think that when you talk about spaces, 
That's exactly the, the imagination we have to take into this. Um, it's not enough to say that we need to have different kinds of conversations or different kinds of encounters because um, our, our public spaces, our, a lot of our media spaces, our political spaces are not set up for us to walk into them and be different, right? Um, it wouldn't be smart to walk into a lot of these spaces and be vulnerable. Um, um, or, you know, we, we could walk in with a genuine curiosity, but it might not be a reasonable thing to expect of the other person uh, to respond to our curiosity. So, um, but you know, one, one of the things that fascinates me, uh, there's, so, there's so much paradox of our moment, and one of the things that fascinates me is on the one hand, we do have these huge online lives, um, but we also have this, it, it, hand in hand with that is this rage for convenings, and the fact that everywhere you, there, you know, this kind of gathering is now being woven into the fabric of life in a way, five years ago, this was not something people thought to do. So, so I think we, but I, I kind of think I would hand that back to you. I think each of us, where we live, has to look at the world we know and that we can see and touch um, and, and figure out in that context how, you know, not just how we create a different space there, but what it means to stretch out of our comfort zone. Um, and, yeah, th but... What you have so right is that we have to create the conditions. And um, if I try to offer another just simple way to think about it, I think it's about creating hospitable spaces, yeah. which is more than just an invitation. It's about, it's about you know, paying attention to details, to the welcome, um, so that something new can happen. So that's really not a prescription. But I actually think we have the knowledge. We really do. And it's really important to, be, to think about this as how I can create new realities where I live and in what I know, as opposed to how I can fix this horrible uh, problem of this, this, you know, the national canvas. You know, the, the thing that's really fascinating is human beings under stress is very, very stable finding in the literature. Um, for instance, people during a natural disaster, uh, their in-group bonding goes way up. We're in it together, right? We depend on each other. Our out-group derogation goes way up. Those people don't get it. They're not us, okay? Um, a third one that follows right behind is our punishment of in-group descent also goes up. So, we're in it together, but if you decide that we're wrong, you're out of here, right? In a very slow motion way in our society, we've allowed persistent chronic stress to create sorted out communities where many of those dynamics exist. And I wrote a book about this. It was sort of a kind of fundamental premise of this work on resilience on how we create so social resilience. And I was deeply challenged in the, my own work um, when I encountered these ideas to realize how much they pervaded my own basic thinking about, well, there's those people and there's me, right? This the basic boundaries that you make between 
yourself and the other. And so um, one of the things we did, we discovered is this amazing thing called the Abraham Path. It was created by a negotiation expert named Bill Urey and a team of people, and it, it it's a, now is not walkable anymore, but it's a 200-kilometer path that retraces the steps of Abraham. It goes through Muslim, Christian, and Jewish communities, and it's specifically designed so that you encounter the hospitality that is at the core of the common understanding of the three people of the book, the three peoples of the book that share that, that sense of common identity, primarily so that you can enlarge the tribe. So I've brought this experience back to my life, back to, back to here. And I started to think about all these places where, like, what's the path I could walk in my own life? So for me, uh, one of those encounters, there was a piece in the New York Times a couple of years ago. It was a story about um, homeless kids in New York, in Brooklyn, half a mile from where I lived. I'm in a community that I, I mean, uh, buildings I walked by, buildings I rode my bike by, all that kind of stuff. I just saw it all the time. But they could have been, you know, industrial donut factories for all. I have no idea, just whatever. I didn't really connect with them. And so one of the things that started in my own life, and, and I'm a little, I feel a little awkward actually talking about it in public because it was a very private thing, was I just started working in, a, working in a social service community. And I said to the guy who ran it, I don't care what you ask me to do, just don't ask me to do anything that involves opening my mouth. I just want to move boxes. I'll, I'll literally go in the back. I'll just, let me move my body just to do that work so that I don't have to overthink it. I don't have to, I just literally count the number of boxes that I moved from that pallet to this pallet for this mm -hmm. particular social service agency. And, uh, and that became my practice. And I'm not holding that up as some moral example. I'm, I think I'm seeing lots of people that are in my peer group starting to do the same thing or trying to fumble their way in the darkness to some kind of basic thing that they can do at the most local scale. And I, I really do think that's where, uh, for a lot of us, it starts. And so I, I'm not sure, I, I, I don't know how to describe that, but I, I saw this work in the world uh, in ways that, that very clearly are needed right right where we live, right, right here, right now. We have to start, and we can start having the conversations we want to be hearing. And we just have to figure out what, what, how we create those conditions. And, and just the thought to end that was about Trump and about that build a wall, break a wall question. I think one of the basic things that Trump has revealed is we have a solidarity problem. We have a deep solidarity problem. Where you know a lot of my peers are thinking a lot about what's happening in sub-Saharan Africa, they're not thinking a lot about what's happening in Appalachian Kentucky, and in uh, southwestern Ohio or southeastern Ohio. You know, they're not thinking in those kinds of places. And if we want to not build a wall around our country, we have to stop building walls within our country. And it's not the ones that we are naturally sensitized to. Some of them are, we've just sort of let invisibly accrete. Okay, we're being given the, the gentle wrap-it-up music that they play invisibly at the 92nd Street Y. So will you please join me in thanking Krista Tippett for joining us for this wonderful conversation.
Thank you for listening to this 92i program. For more information, visit 92i.org. This program is copyright 2016 by the 92nd Street Young Men's and Young Women's Hebrew Association.